with that said, like I tell my students in government, depending on what channel you're watching and what news media you expose yourself to, you live in a completely different country. So welcome back to episode 16 of The Nest. I hope this episode finds all of you healthy and happy. Today, our guest is Ms. Maldonado, who teaches AP Gov here at the school. And today we're going to be touching up on some current events because I know a lot of people have been seeing recently on the news, a lot of news of this $2 trillion stimulus bill and the, the 1200 bucks that should, everybody should be getting directly deposited into their bank account. So um, Ms. Maldonado, can you explain to us from what you know what this two, $2 trillion stimulus package is? Um, yes, yeah, so this is a multi kind of tiered um, stimulus bill. More than a stimulus bill, it's more like a recovery bill because we're, we're not really stimulating much. It's more to try to get the economy to recover from what's happening. But what it, what it does is that it, it gives a, cert, like a certain amount of money to individuals who qualify and you qualify depending on how much money you made in the last uh, year or so. If you've been filing your taxes, if for any reason you have not filed your taxes, sometimes if your income is too low, you don't have to file your taxes. Right. Um, then you will, you still are allowed to get the money. You just have to go and apply in a certain different place. And then the people who get the money, they're going to get it uh, with different conditions. So if the more money that you made last year, the later on in the timeline that you'll be receiving this money. Now, if you filed always on a timely matter and you always have direct deposit, those people are going to get their money faster just because IRS already has the whole kind of um, integrated system. So it kind of varies from there to there. The bill also has um, increased the unemployment benefits. So the amount of money that different people receive when they claim unemployment, which is big because it's been a while since Congress decided to increase the amount of money that you receive for unemployment benefits. So that's kind of a big, big deal. And then also it included um, a package of like a certain amount of money that was to be given to banks for them to give a small business, so small business loans. And a, at a very, very kind of a accessible interest rate that would help different small bank, like uh, small uh, businesses get access to money now, money that they don't have that could be used for any purpose. That's the, one of the great things of this. There's not a lot of strings attached to what you, you need to use this money and kind of we're giving you this money. So you stay afloat because everything happens so rapidly. Right. And how of this, um, recovery bill would you say goes directly into the pockets of the american people and how much is it um sort of like a corporate bailout in a sense so that's actually a great question um well you know the money that people are getting directly deposited in their accounts uh that twelve hundred dollars that's going 100 percent to the pockets of people now that you know it's been about a month since the bill originally passed and the first round of checks were released about 15 days ago on April 15th. And now that that's happened, a lot of people are, have begun to critique because they've said, look, there's people getting the money that don't really need the money or shouldn't receive the money. Like there's people that are still getting paid and yet they're still getting the money. So, you know, kind of asking government to hold people that don't really need it more accountable so that more people that do need it get more money perhaps in the future. And then as far as small business loans go, that's kind of been the biggest, um, I want to say like a fallout of the stimulus package because there wasn't a lot of 
detail into what is a small business or who could qualify as a small business to right. access this money. And so what ended up happening was large corporations, um, you know, Shake Shack, uh, uh, the other ones, uh, I think it's either Pure Belly or Pot Belly, I can't remember the name, but it's like a sandwich company also. Large, you know, national corporations that have many stores, you know, definitely have more of a base, took a lot of these funds. And then when real kind of mom and pop places wanted to go and get the money or have access to this, there was no money left. Okay. It took about 10 days for all the money that they had allotted for small business to be taken. And what we're seeing now is a lot of this money was taken by things that you or I would not necessarily think of as a small business. Right. So the government's received a lot of heat in that sense because what they want or, you know, congressmen have come out to say, we have to get that money back. We have to make sure that those companies return the money. This is meant, you know, for the small restaurant down the street that really doesn't have any backing or any big, large corporation to help it. Right. And, a lot of people right now are arguing that what's the point of, of a recovery bill for the economy now when we don't know when the economy will recover. So do you think um, with the amount of money that was kind of quote unquote given out to these corporations and small businesses, do you think that's enough to kind of keep the economy more or less afloat for the rest of this pandemic? Or do you see us having to go back into the treasury and kind of bail everybody out again in the near future? Um, you know, it's looking more and more like we're going to have to do it again. Actually, the, the second bill for small businesses only already passed. So they already made more money available for small businesses. Um, now there's more discussion about should people get an additional, you know, check in the mail kind of to help them out. To be honest, I'm, I'm kind of glad you asked this. I had a student ask this today in class. The thing that's happening here and what since it's new territory and a normal other recession, you would in kind of impose these kind of ideals and they would work out naturally because people would continue to consume, continue to spend, they would have money and there wasn't kind of this air that we have now that's really making us afraid to invest. So um, like I was telling my student today, if I get another check in the mail, it doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to spend it as if it was another like normal situation. I think what's different about this pandemic is that people are afraid overall. So even if they have the money, people are thinking, well, what if something else happens to me in the future? I'm not going to spend it. Or, you know, if you want to give out money to people so that they continue shopping or they continue to stimulate the small businesses, I don't know how many people are going to be okay with going to a restaurant once everything opens up, even if they have the money or the time or the ability. I think this is a new monster in that there's a lot of different uh, kind of small ifs, what ifs, that really make a difference. So in this case, you know, yeah, you can give me another $1,200 check, great, but maybe I'll decide not to spend it at all. You know, maybe I already, or I'll just make, you know, make sure to keep it just for utilities and fixed expenses. Right. And maybe, you know, I'll buy a few things I want from Amazon, but it's not going to be the big expectation that we usually have when there's another type of recession that's more economically led, like the 2008 example that this is this is a definitely new territory and i think economists are also making that realization you know the numbers of unemployment are so high and it all happens so rapidly like um it's not going to be a couple months before we get back to normal it's going to be a few years at least right and you kind of lead into my next question because recently we've seen the conversation kind of swift especially with 
the the twelve hundred buck check and candidates like Andrew Yang who've kind of been promoting this this idea of a UBI. Mm-hmm. Do you think a, a for those of, for those people who don't know what a UBI is, it's a universal basic income. So, do you think a a a plan like a UBI would kind of be sustainable for the rest of this pandemic, or is it even sustainable at all in in in, in the United States? Um, okay, so this is definitely a, a really good kind of quote unquote hands on experiment with universal basic income, but I think that the the types of countries that have successfully implemented and and this hasn't been done completely 100% countrywide it's done in different provinces um mostly in like uh socialist countries or not even socialist because we use the word socialist wrong but you know more social kind of uh capitalistic countries like Norway and Sweden and they these countries have implemented that in a way where it's been basic income for provinces, okay, to have, and, and, and it's worked wonderfully in these places, but you have to understand that these countries also have a huge percentage of income that they're receiving. So they can, they can provide income for their citizens because the country itself is receiving a lot of income on their end because of the high taxes. Right. So right now, the country, first of all, we have historically low taxes, okay, in, in different sectors, okay, corporate taxes, you know, personal income taxes have been very low. And the country's already in debt, so we're already spending more than what our income is. And now adding, uh, you know, a universal basic income would mean even more debt, okay. And it's not that we are paying taxes because a lot of the people who will be receiving this will be unemployed, thus not paying taxes. So, it's difficult because, you know, even though it's a great experiment and I think under other circumstances, it could have a different um, result. I think this is not, you know, this is not like what a UBI should be or is and definitely not an example to follow. I think this is a very, you know, specific case of what's happening. Uh, is it sustainable? Absolutely not. Just because we're not making the money, you know. Um, now, we, the U.S. is at a privileged position in that, we have access to money that other countries do not just because of, you know, the fact that people trust us, the fact that, uh, you know, we have always been good about quote unquote paying our debt. So in the world credit rating system, we are, we, we do get loans easily. We do sell bonds. And even if our bonds don't pay a lot, people still want to buy them because we're a safe country. This doesn't necessarily happen in places like Argentina where, People don't really trust the country to pay back its debt. So even if you offer them a very high interest, people are not going to buy from uh, bonds from Argentina. So we do have access to money. That's why we can continue going into debt. Our debt is ridiculously high. It's, you know, historically the highest debt we've ever had. Um, with that said, would a UBI be something that's considered and done for this remainder of the pandemic? I, I don't think so. I don't think it's sustainable enough. Right. And in your previous answer, you mentioned the, the 2008 crisis. And a lot of people are kind of drawing comparisons between the 2008 bailouts and, and the current bailouts. So I'm going to read you a direct quote from a recent political article where they said, the complex language and multiple caveats leave significant room for bank leaders and their partners in the Treasury to structure the assistance however they want. For those people that don't know, the 2008 kind of bailout got a lot of heat because a lot of this quote-unquote bailout money um, was used, for example, by companies like uh, AIG to kind of give their CEOs large bonuses. So do you think this is kind of like a repeat of 2008 or do you think 
we're going to end up going a different way with it? Um, I think I think a lot of companies learned from the 2008 bailout um, what bad publicity would do. Um, in that sense, they, they did abuse the money and the help that the government gave them. You know, they, they every company repaid its debt. You know, they all took the money in the moment and they definitely repaid their debt. However, I think in the situation where people were really suffering, where some people lost all of their savings, all of their retirement funds, and then to find out the government was helping bail out an institution that later decided to use the money in extravagances, that really was hurtful. Um, I don't think companies would repeat this. However, I think what happened with the small business loans and the fact that it wasn't specific enough and left a lot of room for interpretation of what a small business is, was definitely a reminder to a lot of people of just government not wording things in a way where the big guys wouldn't take advantage because, you know, and they did. A lot of the big companies did take a lot of that money and now smaller companies have suffered because they're waiting an additional two, three weeks without access to much needed liquidity. So, um, yeah, I don't think big companies, especially banks, because they remember what the bad rep was and it's taken them a while to get over that. But I definitely think, you know, Companies like Shake Shack, uh, I mentioned before, they're going to have a hard time coming back from this one, you know, especially to the people like you who are well-informed and know what's happening. And what do you think the state of not only the economy, but the state of the political discourse and the state of the country as a whole will be once this all kind of blows over? Um, okay, so I'll do, I'll, I will tell you that I never give my personal opinion. And if you are ever my student, you'll learn that, okay? So I'll, I'll tell you as much as I can in a, in a broad sense, but, um, you know, definitely just the, the situation as it is in the world and the numbers, you know, countries like large countries like China already showed that its GDP was decreasing through European Union. Our GDP will also decrease, which means that's just the numbers that measure the growth of the economy. And if they're all decreasing, we're going to be in a recession territory. So, you know, no matter when this pandemic ends, you know, we have to hold on tight because we will be in a recession, you know, how bad of a recession that time will tell, you know, that only speculation would be the only thing that we can do right now. But, you know, we were in the last few years, we definitely gained from a very strong economy, a very open economy. We had the best uh, growth and the best numbers in terms of unemployment. Um, with that said, you know, sometimes the higher you are, the hurt, you know, the, what's the, what's the expression? The higher you are, the much more it hurts when you fall. I don't know. I think there's an expression in there something. You help me out with that. Right. But, um, uh, overall, I think uh, the political discourse, you know, is definitely going to be impacted by all this just because, you know, a lot of the things that President Trump had in his favor was the economy. And um, I'm not sure how many voters come November will still remember, you know, the things that he did for our economy or with everything that's happening, you know, as, as voters, sometimes we have a very short term memory of, of the things that occur. Um, with that said, like I tell my students in government, depending on what channel you're watching and what news media you expose yourself to, you live in a completely different country. So it's important to, you know, ensure that everybody who will be a voter, everybody in general, especially those who vote come November, are well-informed in both sides and are well-informed in everything that's happening and that they're not selectively exposing themselves to one you know, news source. Right, and you mentioned November, and we, it's very, um, 
it's been brought up a lot, especially recently with the with the primaries, that there is in fact an election coming up and what the right way to handle this upcoming election is. So how much of an impact do you think the pandemic is going to have, not only on turnout, but on results? That's a great question. So I'll be honest, I think because states are the ones that organize the election in terms of, you know, how far in advance early voting can start, what are, what are the times of the polls, how many polls will be available, um, each state is going to have a definitely a chance to really heavily influence the election, um, depending on what kind of accessibility they decide to give. Um, most recently, there was an election for a judge in Wisconsin that gathered a lot of traction because, you know, a lot of the people did not want to go out and vote in person, and uh, they were trying to see if there was some kind of electronic way to vote, but obviously with electronic voting, there's a lot of weaknesses where you can say, well, did someone hack into the data? Is this actually the vote? Is this is this true? How can we make sure that it's safe? Um, I think that most states, if things continue to be the way they are, I think they're going to definitely start maybe voting earlier than, than the usual deadlines, um, hopefully at least, so that it gives people more time and maybe in a more organized form where, you know, you have to make an appointment to vote and that way that you prevent the lines from taking place, you know, definitely it's going to be interesting to see. It has a chance of, you know, really reducing voter turnout just because a lot of people are afraid and, and don't want to, you know, put themselves in situations where right. there will be a lot around, along, around a lot of people. In the Wisconsin election, it was a Republican incumbent and um, the Republicans pushed for the election to take place. And to their surprise, a lot of Democrats went out and vote and actually the incumbent lost the position. So the Democrat a nominee judge ended up winning. So a lot of people are wondering, is the GOP going to push for an election? Are they going to try and, you know, make it more available? What's going to be best for them? Because they are the incumbents and they are the ones that want to kind of hold on to power. Right. And I also want to bring up something else that's been kind of um, in the news, which is the whole situation with the post office. So if you could kind of explain to our viewers what the argument might be for kind of letting the post office kind of deal with it on their own and what the argument is for bailing out the post office. So um, the post office is one of the government corporations that the U.S. has. And um, I'm not sure if people know this, but for years now, the post office has been bankrupt. <laughs> We've had a, a model where the post office has not made money for some time now, and they've tried different approaches. They've changed the CEOs. They've changed the people like the management just to try and see how we can get it. But every time they've raised postal uh, rates, it's, you know, always there's a negative backlash because one of the things you want to make open and available to everyone is the mailing service. So if you make it too expensive, you're no longer making it available. Right. So um, I guess what some people are asking is, should we have some kind of privatized mail system or do we continue to help the post system and mail it out? Um, I don't know, to be honest, I don't know enough of what, what the government, you know, is discussing or saying at the moment in regards to that. I do know that it would definitely be emblematic if, if we go from a public postal system to a private postal system, just because, uh, the U S postal service has been one of our longest corporations, if not the oldest. So I don't know if that answers your question. I apologize if it doesn't, but, um, you know, I think that it's sometimes you as a government you have to make tough choices and i think this is one of those choices that the president congress has to really decide is this something that we continue to help bail out or or is this 
something that we we just we're gonna have to you know pull the plug and privatize and it's not just the postal service there's also been discussions within, within social security about that is that something that we should privatize and that's definitely something that my generation and your generation is definitely going to be affected by because you know if social security is privatized what does that mean to the money that we're supposed to be guaranteed by government there's a lot of holes and gaps to fill in right and how much of a role do you think um, the presence or lack of presence the, of the Postal Service would play in November? In November in the elections? Well, the elections, we can do absentee ballots, which, you know, definitely we need the, the mail for that. Um, you would have to look at numbers of who, who are the people that are voting by mail, um, which I'll tell you right now, the expectation is because of the COVID-19, it was going to be the older population. So, who would be hurt mostly by the older vote not you know going or not going out to the voting booth also absentee ballots includes people who are living abroad who or who are traveling at the moment or even stationed abroad like in different um, military stations so i guess the question would be what party would be most affected by the you know by not having this vote right and then what do you think are some of the biggest things that any future um, stimulus package, relief package should address? Who should address? Um, uh, I'm trying to think, because again, I don't want to put my personal opinion in here. So, mm, you know, I think there definitely needs to be a discussion on unemployment benefits, which, they did get a, a, you know, improved, but I think the unemployment is going to take a long time to recover. Um, and what are different incentives for people to continue to do this? I think education, like loans, a lot of you are going to, um, or not just a lot of you, a lot of people who are going to be finishing college in the next few years, they're going to be entering a very difficult job market. And what, what, are they, what does that mean for the people who are, you know, leaving college with high loans? What is that going to do for them? You know, is there going to be some kind of forgiveness, or are we going to freeze interest rates? Um, everything has a trickle-down effect, right? So if I freeze interest rates for one company or you know for one set of loans, that means that there's going to be less profit. Does that company then have to get rid of employees? So it's a big thing that and a, a lot of consequences that one can potentially have because of this. But I think definitely for sure the the you know the people entering the job market who are going to be really affected by this their, you know, income gap is going to be large too. And it also happened to students who graduated college in 2008. Those, those people who entered the job market in 2008, by average, on average, they end about a couple of thousands less than people who say entered the job market a few years ago. So that's definitely something that in the future they're going to have to address kind of um, the access to that loans and the money and the interest rate that's being charged. Right. And to kind of wrap up here, I'm going to ask you something that I ask every single guest that comes on the show, and that's uh, where do you want to be in 10 years? Oh, that's a great question. Where do I want to be in 10 years? Okay, I would be 44. So I don't know. You know, I'm not usually a person to plan ahead. I kind of go day by day. But um, 10 years. I don't know. That's a great question. I ask myself often where I want to be in five and I can't answer it. So imagine 10, you just killed me, you put me on the spot. Um, I, I know I want to be teaching. I, I really do love what I do and, and I'm lucky to do it. And, you know, I love the school that I work and 
everything that you know has been happening continue to happen you know especially like things like this i absolutely love i'm, I'm huge on podcasts so i was very excited when you guys started your own and thank you and I'm looking forward to you know continuing to learn from you guys you guys teach me more than you guys would ever understand and i don't know just maybe 10 years i don't know i'll think about it now now you're gonna have me thinking about that. sometimes no answer is better than an answer there you go. Look, I, I've, life has taught me that every time you make plans, things switch another way. So never say never. All the things I've said never to have come true. So day at a time. That, that's a good life model to live by. Thank you guys again for tuning in to this episode of The Nest. Um, we hope you guys stay healthy. Um, leave toilet paper for others. And we'll catch you on the next episode of The Nest.